Thank you for downloading this sermon from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website at www.trinityspartanburg.com. Open up your Bibles to Luke chapter 19, please. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one in front of you in the pew. And please stand for the reading of God's Word. This is Luke chapter 19, verses 11 to 27. While they were listening to these things, Jesus went on to tell a parable because he was near Jerusalem and they supposed that the kingdom of God was going to appear immediately. So he said, a nobleman went to a distant country to receive a kingdom for himself and then return. And he called ten of his slaves and gave them ten minos and said to them, do business with this until I come back. But his citizens hated him. And sent a delegation after him, saying, We do not want this man to reign over us. When he returned after receiving the kingdom, he ordered that these slaves to whom he had given the money be called to him so that he might know what business they had done. And the first appeared, saying, Master, your mina has made ten minas more. And he said to him, Well done, good slave, because you have been faithful in a very little thing. You are to be in authority over ten cities." The second came, saying, Your mina, master, has made five minas. And he said to him also, And you are to be over five cities. Another came, saying, Master, here is your mina, which I kept put away in a handkerchief. For I was afraid of you, because you are an exacting man. You take up what you did not lay down and reap what you did not sow. He said to him, By your own words, I will judge you, you worthless slave. Did you know that I am an exacting man, taking up what I did not lay down and reaping what I did not sow? Then why did you put my money, why did you not put my money in the bank and having come, I would have collected it with interest? Then he said to the bystanders, take the mina away from him and give it to the one who has the ten minas. And they said to him, Master, he has ten minas already. I tell you that to everyone who has, more shall be given. But from the one who does not have, even what he does have shall be taken away. But these enemies of mine, who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slay them in my presence. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. You may remember that back when I preached on chapter 18, 31 to 34, I stated that I believe the disciples bought into a false narrative about Jesus and his kingdom, right? Not yet understanding that he meant what he said about being killed and then rising from the dead three days later. They believed that he was about to set up a political and earthy earthly kingdom. They thought he would reign as King David reigned from an earthly throne on a purely, in a purely physical kingdom, right? That this is what they thought is made explicit in the first verse of the text that we read this morning. It says they supposed that the kingdom of God was going to appear immediately. Now, of course, the kingdom of God had appeared, In Jesus, 
in the Incarnation. Right? When he began his ministry, he constantly proclaimed, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Right? The kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of God was there. So the messianic kingdom, that spiritual kingdom that rules over all the kingdoms of the earth, has been inaugurated by Jesus. Yet the disciples were expecting something they thought would be more tangible, right? more physical, more um, ethnic, more earthly. They thought he was about to restore the old glory of Israel, a little swath of land in the Middle East. But he, by his resurrection from the dead, <laughs> was claiming the whole earth as his. Now, now this passage says that Jesus told a, farable, a parable because, why? He was near Jerusalem. So the, the tension is increasing here. The last week of Jesus' life is nearly upon us, as, as it's accounted to us by Luke. Jesus, the unblemished Lamb of God, will be crucified and will die to make atonement for the many. And the apostles still have a false notion of what's going on. They have this false narrative in their minds about what is about to take place in Jerusalem. They're giddy about what's about to happen, but for the wrong reasons. The last thing they think will happen is Jesus dying. It's the last thing they think. They think, it, they think the party's about to begin. In, in this parable, we have a nobleman going to a distant country to receive a kingdom. Okay, the kingdom uh, it is speaking of is, is this home country, but he must go to... It appears he must go to a higher power in order to receive officially this kingdom. Okay, he's going away from his country that will be his kingdom to get a stamp of approval from a higher power. He has a right to that kingdom. He has a claim. It is his. And so he goes to get the official stamp of approval. And while he's away... He, he tells ten of his slaves to do business with the money that he gives to them. Now, notice that it, it is his slaves who are given money to invest. It's those who belong to the noblemen. They are his. He owns them, right? They are his slaves. And, and it's to those men that he gives these um, this money too, and they're to do business with his money. He gives them a moderate amount to invest, 10 minus. That 10 minus is split 10 ways. And so one mina, as your margin notes may tell you, is about 100 days wages. Uh, it's not a small amount. Three months wages, right? Each slave leaves with three months of wages. Um, why does he do this? Why He's going away to receive his kingdom. He leaves them with gifts. Why does he do this? Well, I think it's to test them. He's testing them. He's testing them to learn if they are faithful and fruitful servants. That becomes clear later because he wants to know what's become of what he's invested with them. He, he draws them before him, and they're to give an account for all the things they've done with that money. They, he, he rewards them then 
with responsibility according to the growth through their efforts. And so those who were fruitful, those slaves that were fruitful, are given even more responsibility. Next, the passage you'll notice mentions, okay, so we go from his slaves to go, and it starts talking about the citizens of his country. The citizens of the nobleman's country. These are not his slaves, but they are those who dwell within his, his realm. And what is their posture toward the nobleman? Well, they hate him, it says. They hate him. And they, as the nobleman's leaving to go get this stamp of approval on his ministry, they try to get ahead of him, right, and say, no, no, we don't want this man to rule over us. So, so um, no good reasons are suggested. All we know is they don't want this man to rule over them. Just their desire not to have him reign over them. They hate him. They just hate him. The nobleman proceeds to receive this kingdom and he returns to his land. And the first thing he does is to ask what has happened to those, those gifts that he's given to the slaves, the slaves given money to do business. And we learn about three of the ten. The first slave appears. He was given a mina. And he brings back eleven to his master. His work has produced fruit. Ten times what he was given, and the nobleman praises him. He says, well done, good slave, because you have been faithful in very little thing. You are to be put in authority over ten cities. He gives a slave authority over ten cities. The second slave appears. He was given one mina. He brought back six. And his work has produced fruit, and the nobleman gives him authority over five cities. The third slave appears. He was given a mina, and he brings back what he was given, that single mina. He explains his business plan to his master, saying, Master, here's your mina, which I kept put away in a handkerchief. For I was afraid of you, because you are an exacting man. You take up what you did not lay down, you reap what you did not sow. And so, the master had told these slaves to do what? Do business. Do business with, with what I've given to you. Produce fruit. Make an increase on this gift that I've given to you. This man does not obey his master's command. Right off the bat, he says, no, I won't do business. I will hold what he's given to me. This man does not obey his master's command because he's afraid. He's afraid that he will come back with nothing to lose it in business. Better to disobey the command of this nobleman to do business than to do business and return with nothing, which oftentimes is our attitude in life, right? God has given us talents, and we say, you know, better not to to mess up what God has given than to, you know, by faith, do something to his glory. He has this approach, nothing ventured, nothing lost, which is not the way the saying goes, right? 
nothing ventured, nothing gained. So this man's assessment of the master is summed up by, by um, one of the commentators I read this way. You, he, he's he's uh, paraphrasing what his interpretation of this passage. He says, you are a grossly unfair, austere man who is, as it were, trying to squeeze blood out of a turnip. So this man does not like the expectations of his master. This slave doesn't like that his master has expectations for him, right? He does not like the fact that he was given something from his master and he has to be responsible. He'd rather not have the responsibility. He, he, he doesn't want that responsibility. He does not like fruitfulness. He does not like faithfulness. He doesn't like being given responsibility because it requires something of him. He would just as soon be given nothing than be given something to have and have to do business with it. And all of this is due to the fact that he perceives the nobleman in a certain way. He has made an assessment of his master's character, and that has determined how he lives. So the master... The master then, in a, this is what we call poetic justice. The master then says, well, I'm going to take you at your word. You say I'm an exacting man, and so I am. But knowing that, dear slaves, should you not have worked all the harder to bring back a prophet? Knowing that, shouldn't you have worked all the harder to bring bread? The slave knew the desires. He knew the demandingness of that master, that task, of the task too. He was to do business with a freely given mina. But he, he did the very thing that would assure that the master's desires were not met. That slave made a determination based upon his assessment of the motives of the master. You know, this guy, he's an exacting man. He actually expects to reap when he sows. Well, I tell you what, I'll just take what he's given me and I'll give it back to him when he comes. I will not do business. I will stick this mina in his face when he comes back. And I'll tell him, have your stinking money back. Have your gift back. The master even tells him, look, you could have just taken the mina, put it in the bank, collected interest, and brought that back. And maybe he would have been given responsibility over one sector of one city. (laughs) He could have done low-risk investing. There's no risk at all. He could have just given it to the bank, collected interest, and the master would have been pleased by even that small return. Now, do you think the other slaves had the same attitude as this one slave? Not likely. It's hard to believe that the one who made 10 and then received more would consider the master to be, the master to be austere and exacting. Right? Likely that slave would view this master as extremely generous. 
And that reminds me of a few verses in Psalm 18. It teaches us that God gives to each man according to his measure. With the kind, you show yourself kind. With the blameless, you, speaking of God, show yourself blameless. With the pure, you show yourself pure. And with the crooked, you show yourself crooked. I mean, that is what the text says. Now, your translation probably tweaks that last phrase because they get uncomfortable, but that is the proper translation. Yes, it uses two different words for crooked and crooked, but it is saying to the crooked, God reveals himself as crooked. To this slave, God revealed the the nobleman is revealed as crooked. Okay, and so this... This teaches us, right, that we live according to what we think about God, doesn't it? The kind know God to be kind. The blameless know God to be blameless. The pure know God to be pure. And the crooked know God to be crooked. Always accusing him. They perceive God as the slave perceived the master, as exacting, harsh, and unkind. And thinking this of God would have led this man to be exactly what he perceived God to be. God gives generously to all. The rain falls on the just and the unjust, but unbelievers refuse to acknowledge him or give thanks to him. And so God, and so the, the God they know is, is not good, they surmise. And until God changes their mind, he reveals himself to them in all. And reveals to them himself in all of his glory and goodness. They will see him as crooked. Accusing God. Now finally, finally, after the master denounces the lazy, disobedient, unfruitful slave, he turns to those who were the bystanders, as our text says. And it, it and tells, tells them... To take everything away from that slave, he was given a mina, and now it will be taken away and given to whom? To the one who obeys the master's commands and produces fruit. To the one who did business. Right? And like any good socialist, those bystanders think that that is completely unfair. You don't prosper the prosperous. He's already got 10 more minus because of his investing and working. Why, why should he get another? Well, because the master expects fruit. The nobleman has expectations that his minus would produce more minus. Okay, And Jesus, therefore, concludes the parable this way. The king states the principal teaching. I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But from the one who does not have, even what he does not have will be taken away. I mean, that doesn't even make sense, does it? Even what he doesn't have will be taken away. But these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slay them in my presence. So the king deals with the slave and deals with these rebellious citizens from verse 14. The the fruitless slave is cursed like that fruitless fig tree. Right? The fruitless slave becomes even more extremely unfruitful, impossible for him to bear fruit. And the rebellious citizens who did not want the king to reign over them, 
They're slaughtered. They're killed in the presence of the king. The fruitless slave is cursed. The fruitless slave is cursed. The rebellious citizens are killed. Now remember that this parable is about the kingdom of God. Right? And it was told to correct the misconceptions and misunderstandings of the disciples. The nobleman is Jesus. The slaves are those who belong to Jesus, members of his kingdom, his church. Let's say through baptism. The citizens of the land are the Jews. The Jews of Jesus' time claimed physical descent from Abraham as their salvation. They believed that because they were physically descended from Abraham, that they had a right to God's blessings. They boasted in their proximity to the temple and yet rejected the God who commanded that temple to be built to his glory. Right? We know from the Gospel of John, chapter 1, that Jesus came to his own, the Jews, but his own people did not receive him. Just as the citizens of the noblemen in this parable rejected him, so Jesus, in coming to Israel, was rejected by them. And what is the end of those who reject Jesus? Punishment. The apostate people of Israel and their capital, Jerusalem, would shortly, shortly be a smoldering heap of rock. Just a few chapters forward, Jesus tells the people, these citizens of Jerusalem, that Jerusalem will be surrounded by armies. And that many will fall by the edge of the sword. In other words, you cannot have the kingdom when you reject the king. Such will be the end of all those who reject Jesus Christ as Lord. He will return with the sword coming from his mouth, with which he will strike down the nations, the godless nations of godless people who have refused to have God as their Lord and who have rejected Jesus as their king. But again, let's return for a moment to the slaves. These, I said, represent those in the church, those who have not, as the Jews did, rejected Jesus as king. But what does, what does this make of the third slave? Well, he's a baptized unbeliever. He is, in a sense, he belongs to Jesus because he's a slave, but it's clear that he's an unbeliever. How do I know this? How do I think that he's an unbeliever, an unregenerate person? Well, it's very simple. He doesn't bear any fruit. He does not bear any fruit. He does not grow when the king gives him resources It is as if he does not possess at all what God has given to him. That is what happens with everyone who rejects Jesus. They receive gifts from God everywhere, right? All those gifts of common grace, every breath. The rain falling on the just and the unjust. They receive work. They receive family. They receive provisions. They receive a government that cares about them in certain respects. they're, They're beneficiaries all over the place of God's common grace. But they make no gain with it. They receive 
manifold gifts of God and never give thanks. Never make an investment that leads to growth in the kingdom. Nothing they do with the gift of God is done by faith in him and for his glory. And so it's all sin. They receive and receive and receive from God. And in the end, tell God that he, he's an exacting man. Why would he expect anything from Why would he expect to get anything from me? I don't serve exacting and austere men. The unbeliever is under the impression that whatever he has, he has laid down and sown himself. But God has done all the laying down and sowing in the life of every person he has ever formed in the womb. The scriptures ask the question, what do you have that you have not received? For the unbeliever, they say, well, everything. I didn't receive nothing. The believer, though, having had his eyes open to the absolute sovereign glory and power of God over all things, says, nothing. All that I have received comes from the hand of God. Now consider the the productive slaves. Fruitfulness marks the lives of those who belong to Jesus Christ. Fruitfulness. They recognize that having been given amazing gifts from God, they are required, they are responsible to use them for the end for which they are given God's own glory. You've been given wealth. What does God expect from you? To use that wealth to grow his kingdom to the praise of his glory. You've been given children. What does God expect from you? To use those children to grow his kingdom to the praise of his glory. You've been given suffering. What does God expect from you? To use your suffering to grow his kingdom to the praise of his glory. That's what Paul said. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, that in my flesh I do my share on behalf of his body, which is the church, in filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Paul viewed his sufferings as a mina given to him. You've been given a husband or wife. What does God expect from you? You've been given a mind that thinks. What does God expect from you? You've been, you've been given a vocation. What do you think God expects from you? You've been given a nation within which to live. What, what does God expect from you? You've been given neighbors. What does God expect from you? To, to use those resources to the praise of his glory, to the growing of his kingdom. So Jesus right, very clearly said this. My father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. It's pretty straightforward, isn't it? It's very explicit. I mean, think of the radicalness of that teaching. The world says, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. And so what they have been given is spent on their own pleasures. The Christian has been given much, those minus from God, to the end that we might Glorify our Father in heaven. So everything we have is a stewardship in the kingdom of God. And it's our pleasure to bring glory to God by our fruitfulness. It's our pleasure to consider every fiber of our being, every resource at our disposal is given, you know, 
as given to us as a means of building the eternal kingdom of God to the glory of the Father, that wicked slave considered his master to be unfair and so refused to be fruitful, refused to make something of what he had been given graciously. Is that the manner in which you approach your life? Perhaps you split your life into compartments, one for God, and the other belongs to me. God can have a certain bearing on this or that, but there are things that are mine and are untouchable. This I will use for the glory of God, and this I will use for my own glory. Sundays are his, Mondays through Saturdays are mine. I mean, that really can't be the mindset of the Christian. For six days, you'll be the wicked slave, and for one day, you'll be a fruitful slave? No. Christian knows that everything he has has been given to him for a purpose. God requires that we take what he has given us and make it produce for his kingdom and his glory, and such is our delight. What can be better than being a productive, fruitful, faithful citizen of an everlasting kingdom? But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. That unbelieving slave refused to believe that truth. He, through his lack of enthusiasm, his distrust, his dislike of the master, and his unfruitfulness proclaimed not the excellencies of him, but the burden and unkindness of God Almighty. And such can never be the attitude, the understanding, and the purpose of the Christian. Right? Go and bear fruit in every aspect of your life. And by that, proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his light. Amen? Let's pray. Almighty Father, we praise you. We praise you for your goodness to us, Lord. I pray that as you gift us in so many ridiculous ways, that we would be faithful to invest what you have given to us and to be good stewards who live for the increase of your glory. I pray that we would would contemplate how it is and where it is that we can do this And, Father, that you would, by your grace and your mercy, make us fruitful. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.